So an Anglican bishop makes his annual visit to an Anglican church. He's receiving new members through confirmation and reception. And one lady asks him during Sunday school, she's about to join the church, and she asks him, Bishop, are we premillennialists or postmillennialist? She's talking about the thousand-year reign and how the end times are going to come and all the little details. And he tells her, he said, my dear, we're, for the most part, panmillennialist. She said, what in the world? Never heard of such a thing? And he said, well, here's the deal. We, we don't get folks going on the small details much, but we believe that when Jesus is Lord of creation, Jesus is Lord over all things, if Jesus is Lord, then all things are going to pan out in the end. Because he wins, the church wins, in other words. And I think that there's no church that needed to hear that more than the church at Philadelphia this morning. So that's where we're going to look at. We're in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania. We're in Asia Minor again, okay? Um, But this is one of the series, seven letters to seven churches, the sixth church that we're going to look at. We've got one more next week. But what would it look like if Jesus, the Lord of all creation, addressed a faithful church? What kind of characteristics would typify a faithful church? That's what we're going to see this morning. We'll find out. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to open them to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, Uh, just to make sure that I'm not telling you uh, stories here. Just check me on this, okay? Uh, We're going to look at three truths this morning, Revelation 3. Three S's, be easy to remember. A servant church, Satan's plan, and a sovereign Lord. So servant, Satan, sovereign. Write those down if, you gotta, if you're taking notes. So Philadelphia, it is the city of brotherly love, right? These Christians weren't getting much love, let me tell you. Wasn't much love going on. It was a hostile culture. They were hostile to Jesus and hostile to his gospel. And they were trying to live in the midst of this. Get ready, folks. We live in a growingly hostile world to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We need to look at what Philadelphia went through, how they sustained themselves, what that looks like, because coming to a a town near you is hostility to the gospel. Philadelphia, it housed temples to various pagan gods and goddesses like Artemis, Helios, Zeus, Dionysus, Aphrodite. They even had the imperial cult where they worshiped Caesar himself as a god. All this around the Church of Philadelphia. All this. So let that sink in. The cultural opposition to Christianity in Philadelphia could not have been stronger. They were against the odds. One historian found that in the synagogue in uh, Philadelphia, there was an inscription they found in the third century synagogue where they had kicked the Christians out of the synagogue, no longer allowed to worship there because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So you get the picture. This little church is hated by Rome. They're hated by their former Jewish brothers and sisters. There is opposition to this church. So what would Jesus say to that church? Look at verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power, but yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Hear that. Against all the external threats, against all the odds, you have kept my word. You've not denied my name. 
And in verse 10, at the end, he says, And because you've kept my word, with patient endurance through this time of tribulation, guess what? Guess what? Because you faithfully endured and refused to deny, you are my servant church. They're a servant church. Of all the other churches, only two are called not to repent of something. Philadelphia is by far the glowing, beautiful light of gospel living in Asia Minor. No repentance. They are faithful against all odds. They held on to Jesus with every ounce of their strength. Now look again at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. At the end of that verse, I know you have little power. Little power. They're in the midst of a powerful culture, and they have little power, except for they got Jesus on their side. You see, this church was not Saddleback Community. It wasn't Willow Creek in Chicago. It wasn't even New Spring or Seacoast. They weren't a big deal. They were just an average church, an ordinary church, an unremarkable church in many different ways, except the one way that mattered. They did not deny the faith. They held on to Jesus with every ounce of strength they had. That typifies a servant church, my friends. What does it mean to be a servant church? It's to want the fame of Jesus more than the fame of individuals or the church itself. So here's a little background. The city of Philadelphia was established 200 years before the writing of this letter. It was established as a beacon for Greek culture. Literally, it was in such a strategic place in the Greek world that they wanted to promulgate Greek language. They wanted to Hellenize people, to bring Greek art, Greek language, Greek culture, and Greek gods out into the world. That was their mission. But here's the church, this little tiny faithful church in Philadelphia. Against all this Greek culture, they're opening up a new doorway This doorway is not Hellenizing the world, it's Christianizing the world. They're singing the gospel out into the world from this same place, the saving gospel of Jesus. So picture them preaching, proclaiming, witnessing day after day in a hostile culture against all odds, humbly obedient, a servant church. They were successful. How do I know that? You're here today. You're here today. It took successful, faithful churches like the one in Philadelphia to spread the gospel so that we've received it ourselves. Therefore, we've got to take it out to the world now in our time. That's what servant churches do. We seek not our fame, but the fame of Christ. We seek not to expand our numbers, but to expand the territory of the kingdom for Jesus. We shape our culture. We shape our families. We shape our neighborhoods for Jesus And we share Jesus with the world. But Satan doesn't like that. Satan's plan, number two. Please hear this. When the people of God or the church of God get really serious and passionate about spreading the gospel to the world, you will become under attack. I guarantee it. Every time. Jean-Baptiste Vianney, the Roman Catholic scholar, he said this. He said, the devil tempts only those souls that wish to abandon sin. If you want to turn away from sin and turn towards God, he's going to attack you. He said, the others already belong to Satan. He has no need to tempt them. So when you get passionate about Jesus, you can expect to be attacked. When you become bolder for Christ, you can expect the attacks to intensify. Satan stands against the gospel. John 10.10, Jesus says it. Don't believe me? The thief 
the devil, Jesus says, comes only to kill and steal and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So what in the world is this synagogue of Satan? They, well, we know that they're lying. What are they lying about? They're lying about Jesus, who he was. They're saying he wasn't the Messiah. They're discrediting the Christian church that's preaching him as the Messiah. They're lying about the Christians. They're lying about Jesus. But look what Jesus says. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet one day, and they will learn that I have loved you. Everybody who's trying to conceal the gospel of Christ, who's trying to come against the progress of Christ in the world, he said, man, I'm going to make them bow down. They're going to realize that they were wrong and that I loved you. I loved you on that last great day. It'll be too late for them, but they will know I loved you. Now, we haven't touched on this in the series, and we got to. The synagogue that Satan represents is more than human opposition. If you hadn't gotten that, you need to. Remember Ephesians 6, 2, Paul describes our opposition in the world like this. He said, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the very spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? Trip, I thought you said that the battle was against Caesar and the Greek God and the Greek culture and those who were denying Jesus. Well, that was what's going on in the world. Paul's saying there's something going on up there when something goes on in the world to stand against the gospel. Whenever there's earthly resistance, there's a heavenly reason and a heavenly tool being coming down to use those institutions and those peoples to thwart the gospel. Satan's goal is always to conceal the gospel and person of Jesus. That's all he's got left. He knows in the words of Luther that Satan is a defeated foe. And yet now all he has left is conceal Jesus and take people down with him. That's it. Conceal the gospel, deny Jesus, discredit the people who preach the gospel. Don't believe me? Look at what Jesus says all throughout these letters. To the church at Smyrna, calls the, he warns them of the synagogue of Satan. To the church at Pergamum, he describes the opposition as a place where Satan dwells. To the church at Thyatira, Jesus warns them of the deep things of Satan. And here today, here today in Philadelphia, verse 9, he warns them of the synagogue of Satan. You ever wonder why when Jesus unfolds his... his uh, mission in the world and says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and on the third day be raised from the dead. Peter comes up to him and says, God, forbid it. Lord, forbid it. I won't let it happen. Remember what Jesus says at that rebuke? He says, get behind me, Peter. No, he doesn't, does he? He says, get behind me, Satan. He's being used as a diversionary tool trying to get Jesus not to fulfill the gospel message in the world. That's all Satan's got to conceal the gospel, to conceal Christ. In fact, remember the uh, first engagement Jesus has with Satan? And the, as soon as he's baptized, he's in the wilderness being tempted, having theological conversations with Satan. And what's Satan trying to do? Trying to discredit the mission. If you are the Son of God, oh, well, you, you don't want to do that cross thing. Just bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms. See what he's trying to do? He's trying to divert Jesus, discredit the mission, get him to avoid the cross. 
But here Jesus is saying your opposition is not only what you see in the world, but there's a spiritual realm that's driving the whole thing. So we need to understand that because that's Jesus' assessment of those who draw near to Christ that the devil will come, Satan will come. He will try and distract you. If it's true in their culture, it's true in ours. So folks, uh, let's be clear. There are principalities and powers, cosmic powers, that are striving against the work of St. Paul's and other faithful churches in the Diocese of South Carolina and individual Christians. If it was so in Philadelphia, it's so here. Last point, sovereign Lord, sovereignty of Jesus. That's the only thing that gets them through this time. Uh, Servant church, Philadelphia, filled with the Spirit, preaching, proclaiming the gospel faithfully in a hostile culture, and yet they're shaping their culture for Jesus. So what would Jesus say to that church? Look at verses 7 and 8. He reminds them of his preeminence. He says, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one can open. I know your works, Philadelphia, before I have set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. Jesus, the Son of God, the offspring and the heir and line of David, the one who had been promised as Messiah, says, I'm opening up a door. I've got the keys. I'm opening up a door to heaven that even Satan can't shut. No one can destroy the mission. No one can can come against my gospel being successful in the world. Not even Satan himself. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8? Goes through all this list of things that, that may trouble us and come against us. Then he says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or the sword Stop us? No. He says, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. So neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I've opened up a door. No one can shut the door, not even Satan. And he reminds us in verse 11. He says, church, hold on, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast to what you have. I'm coming soon. Keep on being faithful. Endure. Tribulation won't last. I'm coming to get you soon. Not even Satan can shut your door. No one can, the preeminence of Jesus says that he is Lord and Satan is not. And in Jesus all things pan out for his church. So verse 12 goes on for other promises. He says that the one who conquers and endures will be worshiping God, will be a pillar in the temple of God at the end of time. Second thing, he says that God's going to write his name on that believer's heart, a name that's indelible, that says God loves you and he's always with you forever. And finally, he promises a new dwelling place and a new Jerusalem. You know, in chapter 21, we'll get into this later, but that new Jerusalem is actually a new heaven and a new earth where heaven itself comes down and melts with earth, and God reestablishes his sovereign reign, kicks Satan into the pit of hell, and he becomes sovereign over earth again in such a way that everything is perfected to God's glory. In 21.4, it says on that day, he's going to wipe away tears from everybody's eyes. Death is going to be no more. Neither will there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. You think maybe a church like Philadelphia, in their faithfulness and yet in their persecution, needed to hear those words. 
I'm coming to get you. My name's on your heart. I'm coming to mark you, and I'm coming to redeem this world. What an encouragement that must have been. I hope that it's an encouragement to you this morning. Four quick things to be applica- for application. A servant church holds fast to Jesus. It does not deny Christ. It may not be powerful in the world's eyes, but it stays strong in the Lord. Number two, the servant church is always intent on proclaiming and spreading the good news of Christ, even in a hostile culture. It must be about proclamation. Think about this. The Christian church is only one generation from extinction. You ever think about that? If we quit preaching, teaching, transforming our culture for Christ, it's dead in 100 years. The servant church, number three, is always aware of the assessment of Jesus that we're under spiritual attack and that those who come against the gospel are tools of Satan. And we want to pray against that because we want the fame of Jesus to spread. Pray against the spiritual world that comes against us. Number four, a servant church rests on the sovereignty of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, Satan is not. He's going to come again and kick Satan into hell. Praise God. And on that day, all the tribulations of the saints will be gone. So when Jesus is Lord of the church and Lord of us individually, please hold on because all things are going to pan out.